listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3RRR. Hello, you're sitting to the Breakfasters podcast for the week 2nd of April to the 6th of April. We were away on the 2nd though, so actually it's just the 3rd of April. Uh, (laughs) This week, uh, during Wednesday... I convinced Jeff that I'd got a job with Dustin Martin. It was very entertaining Could stuff. Could have happened. It could have <laughs> happened. And uh, we also had a chat to, Do- to Matt Nurse who came in because Dr. Jen was away for Weird Science. But he came in and had a very interesting chat about the March for Science, which is happening this week. It was good. We also got to chat to Maddie Rice, who's performing in the show Fleabag, currently on at the Malt House. Um, amazing chat with her. And also, we came up with our own version of the opening ceremony of the Commonwealth we Games. sure did. Yeah, and we chatted to one of the curators of a fantastic exhibition that's on at Acme about Alice in Wonderland over different films called Wonderland. And then we played some Trivial Pursuit, which was just as annoying as you would imagine. <laughs> Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. You are on Triple R with Sarah, Jeff and Geraldine. Uh, no, now you're with Jeff. His headphones are on. No, I don't need headphones. Uh, sure. Headphones are amateurs. Uh, so this is Wednesday, which means that it's Wednesday time. Yes. And there was a long road to this Wednesday, as there so often is now. Yes. Uh, with failed attempts and bad dares. So you re- you dared me last week quite a good dare. It was to wear different football colours other than yeah. Richmond Tigers to And that footy. was through um, Graveyard at Mitch Tube. Yeah, which was a great that. – but I haven't had the time between now and then because it was the Adelaide Interstate game, so I haven't gone to anything where I've worn my colours. Yeah. Uh, yes, I'm going to the Hawthorne game this week, but – Sucked in that still different deer in between, so now I don't have to wear Hawthorne's crap colours. Uh, but I might we might revive the deer later on in the season. Yeah. So then I texted Jez last night realising that the deer, there'd been no dares and said, you need to give me a new Wednesday. Mm-hmm. And you said back, you need to tell Jeff that you're quitting. <laughs> and uh, and then, <laughs> I know, I know, all right. All right. And, but to, to be fair, then Jez texted me and said, actually, is that too mean? And we decided that maybe it might be a bit stressful but, and I have trouble lying as well. And then she said, well, maybe... Would have just offered the panel. So, <laughs> a bit of change in the musical direction of this show. <laughs> um, and then she said, maybe convince him you got a puppy. And they're two very different things, aren't mm, they? Yes. That's a, yeah, it's a bit 100 to zero, isn't it? It yeah. is 100 to zero. I've quit or I've got a puppy. And then you said, or or you could just say that you've got some weird job and you're not sure if you should quit. So it came to some kind of middle ground on this. And I thought, and I got online, it was about 7pm at night, and I thought, I haven't spoken to Jeff. I've just <laughs> got to get this out of the way. Actually, Andrew was leaving the house. He wanted me to go and help him get stuff for dinner. And I was like, no, I have to get ready. I've got to do some work for tomorrow morning. And he's like, you're just on Facebook Messenger. <laughs> Yeah, that is my work. That is my work. (laughs) Uh, And then I, so I messaged Jeff. Jeff I said to Jeff something just to see if he was online uh, and said, did you see something or other? And then he said, yes. And then I said to Jeff, I got offered a job, dot, dot, dot. And he said, oh, as? I might not read them all out word for word. It's okay, Jeff. (laughs) (laughs) You can see him reading your head just in case. (laughs) I said, to be the personal media assistant for Dustin Martin at the Richmond Football Club. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, what a great job! Why is it wouldn't be? Oh, because that you would really think have to think long and hard about that. I sure would. Do I want a media career, or do I want to follow Dustin Martin around with a phone all day? Who knows? And then Jeff said, "No!" Exclamation mark. And I said, "Yes." Did you, <laughs> yes. You, did you go no? As in, oh no, I can't I believe didn't it. No, I thought, well, why not? Did you? Did you, well, did you believe me from the start? Look, I know that Dustin Martin is a football guy. Yeah. I know that Sarah is obsessed with football. Yep. It didn't seem crazy to me that yeah, a football no, guy might offer a job. Just oh, might have heard me on Breakfasters and thought, <laughs> you know what? I want you to be my personal media assistant, whatever that is. <laughs> well, yeah, well, there is that. I, but, but the no was... Well, no, no, was, was. Oh, no way, this is so awesome. It was no exclamation mark. So was that no or was it no? Look, to be honest, I wasn't really thinking about it. Oh. I thought, no, that is some surprising. Or was it just a no? Oh, <laughs> I thought, no. That, that is some surprising news. <laughs> Tell me more. And I, then he goes, really? And I said, yes. And then he goes, ha, 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 you should do it. And I went, really? <laughs> <laughs> didn't give a, the yeah. door hit me on the way out. 
And he said, I don't know. Then he goes, he's the dumbass guy, right? That's <laughs> <laughs> actually what he said. Well, I was so, trying to work out who. Because he was the one you went to see at the. He's a footballist. <laughs> he was the one that you went to see at the, at the Crown. Yeah, yeah, I saw in the Q&A. Yeah. Yeah. And I said, the one with the neck tats. Um, I'd have to follow him around and take socials and pictures and make sure he doesn't say the wrong thing in interviews. <laughs> I was trying to work out what the job could involve. <laughs> Like a real job, yeah, kind of, doesn't sounds it? Sounds legitimate. And then uh, Jeff kind of said, oh, "I don't know, might might well be terrible, I guess." But then he said, "You love football, maybe uh, this is a job for you." Going off you go, mate. Uh, and I know, and I just thought I couldn't believe how happy you were to let me just walk <laughs> out the door. I, uh, I think you were just being supportive, surely. Yeah, yeah. No, I thought she's always wanted. You know, she loves football so much. She's, maybe this is a chance to be the next. Football, football media assistant for Dustin Martin. <laughs> I actually thought at this point maybe you were drinking again. <laughs> 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 to be honest, I said I'd imagine I'd have to create radio, and he said to be on- and then he said to be honest, I have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> I know what I didn't know what, what what being a football media assistant actually entailed, and whether that it'd be a good does. job. <laughs> then I couldn't deal with it anymore because I am so Catholic. I cannot deal with lying oh, no. for that long. Not really Catholic anymore, but I think the guilt burns me. So then I yeah. I couldn't deal with. Jeff's. I don't know how Jeff was feeling, although apparently not that bad at all. <laughs> I was being, as I said later on, I was being supportive that you, yep. you know, follow your dream. And I just said, I can't do this anymore. I'm not, I haven't got a job. <laughs> <laughs> and what did you say to that? Were you just like, oh, oh well. I think he just went, ha, 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 oh. Oh, well, it wasn't hugely invented. When, when she said it, I just thought, because, you know, like she's already got another job. I didn't assume that she meant she was leaving here. I just uh, thought, you know, I don't know, maybe she's going to do press releases for this football guy or something. Right. So I didn't think it was any... And he said he didn't even know if it was a weird job and he didn't know <laughs> anything about it. So he didn't know whether it was possible that I'd be doing Which is kind of why I chose it because I thought Jeff wouldn't know yeah. if so that's I'm a just realistic trying job. To, you know, your friend tells you they've got a new job. You don't say, that's, fuck, that's crazy. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> you, you lunatic, what did you say? I hadn't accepted the job. I just thought I got offered it. Anyway, uh, anyway, I thought it was a terrific job. And, um, <laughs> Thank you. And then I thought, oh, maybe I should have just told him I'd got a great Dane because that was the other thing I was going to do. But I would do. have just been excited about that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Because I was when I was thinking about it, I was like, oh, you know, obviously you don't want to hear that. I thought you probably didn't want to hear that she was quitting. No, she's been sacked. It's been dramatic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Too much drama. Yeah. Too Whereas, much drama. And then, but then having to think about it. <laughs> Something else, you know. <laughs> uh, where to the, the, the calls from football clubs start coming in? So oh, yeah. <laughs> For me, they're personal media assistant. I've just invented a new role. I don't, yeah, I think that's a, that's a good job, though. I can go straight from radio to personal yeah. media yeah. assistant. Yeah. Yeah, Dusty, any right. other week. You're the person who stands up in front of them and says, look, don't say that. Stop don't. talking right Stop now. Talking. Sit down. Uh, who's next then? Uh, it's back I think to Jeff. Amazing. Yeah. Because oh. I, I had two attempts and I failed, so <laughs> we moved on from me. Duck, duck, goose. Well, maybe I should do the, the rosary beads one. Oh, jeez, you really. All right. Done. Oh, volunteered your own dad. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Well, that's the biggest the, challenge is, is getting finding, a rosary. It's getting rosary beads. I genuinely think for someone that didn't want to do this segment, you seem to get the most joy out of it. <laughs> <laughs> there hasn't been one day you haven't wanted to do with, like, yeah, total glee. Yeah. And you do it five times. <laughs> yeah, the, I don't know, but the trouble is I'm not really sure what you do with the rosary beads well, apart from you there just... you go. You oh, have to find it. You've got to look it up. You yeah. two rosary beads. And also, I don't think it matters. Three triple R. You're tuned to Breakfast is here on Triple R. The International March for Science is coming up very shortly on Saturday, the April 14th. Tell us all about it. We're joined by one of the organisers, Matt Nurse, who's a Master of Science student, but he's now joining us in the studio. Welcome to Triple R. Glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Why, why does science need a march? Well, I guess um, first we need to think about what science really is and it's a way of very carefully checking facts. And I think more than anything else, the world right now needs fact checkers. I think that if you think about human history for in, in three different periods, there was a period where we didn't really know why there was a fiery ball in the sky and we didn't know whether witches were real. Then we got to this beautiful period of time when we could actually check facts. The scientific method had been developed. People really wanted to know what the answers were. Now we find ourselves in a very different environment, which is kind of the misinformation age, not the information age, where there's so much information, people can pick and choose. And 
one thing that I think about is the world's most powerful person at the moment is a massive science denier. And mm. I think we need to take some political action as science fans and scientists to say we're standing up for facts and evidence against that. So what do the organisers of the March for Science want to happen? Well, one thing we really want to have happen is that we really want to have a science minister in the nation's cabinet. For the second time ever in Australia's history, we don't actually have a science minister in the cabinet. Oh. The only other time that's ever happened was under Tony Abbott's cabinet and Malcolm Turnbull thinks that's a tradition he wants to continue. So we don't have political leadership in the most powerful decision-making bodies that actually are representing science and facts and evidence necessarily as their priority and I think that's a real problem. So what are some of the biggest problems facing working scientists today? I mean, are we talking about cuts to education? Are we talking about funding cuts to the CSRO? What what, uh, what are the issues? Certainly funding cuts to research is a, is a massive problem. I'm a bit hesitant to say that because we're not really prioritising, yes, we need to get more money. That's not really what this is about. But if we, as a society, want to get the right an- answers, want to get the facts and evidence that make us choose the right decisions in the future, then we do need to have science funded. I think more than that, though, we need to get a better understanding across the community about the benefits of science. Not everybody understands that. When you live in an environment where you can go onto Facebook and you can find, you know, whether or not vaccines are effective or not, and you can choose your answers, I think we need to go back a bit and start getting people to start appreciating why we should think critically. For example, we need to get critical thinking being taught into um, primary school kids so that they're not deceived by things in the future, by people who've got ulterior motives. So that's something that we're really about, trying to get more critical thinking uh, education in schools. But scientific research is incredibly important, although, you know, it could come across as a bit self-serving to say that that's what we're really about. Uh, We talked about the March for Science last year, year, so it's been going for a while. What's happened since last year's March? I mean, was last year's March deemed to be a success? Is is there a movement building? Yeah, well, that's that's the critical success factor for us. So more than a million people turned out last year for the inaugural March for Science across the world. That included 10,000 Australians, which was absolutely off the charts. If we can get anything like that this year, we'd be really amazed. The best thing that's come out of it is that we've become organised. So the people that oppose science are very organised people. If you think about climate change deniers, for example, they are extremely organised people. If you think about people who oppose fluoridisation of water, for example, they are extremely organised people. By having the March for Science last year, we're now a bit more organised. It's not something that scientists and science fans have been traditionally good at, so building that movement is actually really important. So if people out there really want to find out a bit more about this movement, they can come to our Facebook page to search for March for Science Melbourne um, and find out about where your local rally is um, and join in. We'd really encourage you to. With something like climate deniers, where you've got people referencing some scientific studies, how do you overcome that when you have a division between scientists? That's really hard and it goes to people's beliefs. So you need to sort of explain to people that um, when we say that climate change is real, we're not doing that because of any logical um, benefit to us. We're saying, hey, there is actually a real problem and you're going to be affected too. And in fact, all of us are going to be affected. And the problem with climate change, of course, is it's sort of progressive. So it's going to get worse and worse slowly. It's not going to affect you tomorrow or next year. Um, But we need to start explaining to people that, yes, our society is under a threat. Humans as a species are under threat. I mean, you know, if you play it out to its worst possible extension, uh, the world is under threat to the point where we may no longer have a world that we can live in, which is, you know, an absolute disaster and we need to take some sort of action on that. Now, coming to people with numbers and facts and, you know, scientific reports and things is not going to, you know, get people to change their behaviour. But explaining to them that the risks are real and and explaining it one-on-one to people I think is really important. So, you know, part of the the reason why we have the march is to get people to actually see that scientists are people and science fans are people and you can have a conversation with them. They're not scary people with lab coats and, you know, syringes and stuff necessarily. No, your lab coat's quite nice, though. <laughs> okay, no, I'm, I'm actually wearing, wearing a flanny. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's my triple R gear I'm wearing now. <laughs> uh, climate change is, is an interesting example of this, though, because if you think about the climate denialists, these are not people who are ignorant of the science. These are people very often with a vested interest in preserving the status quo. How then do you overcome that? Because it's not a question of educating them. I mean, most of the big companies have done research on this for years and they know what's going on, but 
their interest in the status quo. So how do you respond to something like that? Well, I think you've got to focus on the people who are undecided in the middle. You've always got to acknowledge that there are smart and clever and organised and, and well-funded people who oppose what the science says on that particular topic. But I think by going out and talking to people in their communities um, is the way to do it because there are a lot of people who are undecided. And we've just got to make the effort to actually approach them and persuade them and show them what's actually real and what's not. Because if we don't do that, we fall into the trap of going, oh, we'll go back into our labs and, you know, do the numbers and do all the boring work that scientists do when our opponents are out there actually campaigning. And I think that's a real fault that we've we've fallen into because, you know, often scientists are introverts and they're not comfortable trying to persuade people on things. They just want to get the answers and publish them and say, there you go. Well, that's not good enough because our opponents are very good at doing that campaigning work. How is it easy then to, to, to convince governments, though, it's like a whole other thing, right? Yeah, very hard. I mean, some politicians are very open to evidence-based policy and they, they come out and they say that. Um, and some politicians have already decided before they even go and looking at facts. So, y- you know, it's it, you've got to focus on which minds you can change. I think you've got to be realistic about that. Yeah. You can't change somebody who's got very ingrained beliefs about anything. I mean, you're never going to convince me to follow anyone but the Melbourne Football Club, <laughs> even though the evidence says I probably shouldn't, right? <laughs> so we all fall into this trap a bit. But um, if you focus on, oh, okay, we can we can convince these politicians here, we can't convince those, you go through it method- methodologically and you can actually get some success. Mm. Uh, there's climate change, obviously, which is a, an issue um, that you'd like to showcase, but um, is there any other kind of things that are happening in science that we should know more about? Well, yeah, I mean, I heard your program before and I heard that um, seagulls drool and actually I found a scientific report that says, yes, they actually do drool oh. because they have to drink um, w- uh, seawater and <laughs> they have to process I, that. There I you go. I was Googling that like crazy and I loved it. We had the scientists <laughs> yeah. to confirm it. So, Thank you know, you. We, can, we can solve big problems like climate change and little problems about whether or not, you know, a court case in Canada is right when they find that somebody uh, had drooling seagulls all over their <laughs> yeah, hotel room. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure that our pepperoni seagull story is the best <laughs> example of overcoming fake news. <laughs> no, but, uh, I mean, there are lots of problems that you can sort out with science. Um, like, for example, um, nutrition is a huge one. So there are all sorts of people, like Pete Evans, for example, out there all the time, I've got the cure for this, I can solve that and blah, paleo. blah, blah. Mm. You know, and, and the problem is is that paleo, exactly, you know, there's a new fad diet every minute, you know, there's keto, there's all sorts of crazy stuff coming out and they're always really well promoted. And, and science goes through and goes, nah, 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 nah. And that's one of the difficult things that science has got. It's so brutal at telling people that their beliefs are wrong. And so that's why there's this anti-science movement at the moment, because people don't like to be told they're wrong. And and science does that. It comes up with a binary answer. Yes, that's right. No, that's wrong. Um, And I think that's a real challenging uh, thing as well. But, you know, things like what sorts of foods to eat, you know, how to treat cancers. You know, there is a way of preventing cancer, and that's by having a vaccine um, against cervical cancer. You know, mm. it's a very effective way of making sure that doesn't happen. Australia's leading the world in that. In fact, Melbourne's leading the world in that kind of research, which is amazing. Okay, the march is coming up on April 14th. Uh, what's going to be happening on the day and what do you want people to do? Uh, we want people to turn up. Please turn up. That would be fantastic. Um, uh, it's at Birrarung Ma, which if you're walking from Federation Square to the MCG, it's about a third of the way down the river. Um, we'll be having some speakers who are scientists and science fans. We'll be announcing those on our Facebook page, so come and find us there and uh, join in. It's going to be fun. It's a non-party political event, um, but it's political in the sense that we want some change from our nation's leaders. Okay, as I said, Saturday, April 14th, that's the March for Science. We've been talking to one of the organisers, Matt Nurse. Thanks so much for coming in. Three. Triple. That's right, you're tuned to Triple R. This show is Breakfasters. Fleabag is a show playing at the Malthouse until the 22nd of April as part of a comedy festival. It was written by Phoebe Waller-Bridge, but it's performed by Maddie Rice, who is joining us now. Welcome to Breakfasters. Thanks for having me. Doing, doing a one-person show must be pretty terrifying. It sounds terrifying to me anyway, <laughs> but maybe even so, more so when that show was originally performed by the person who wrote it and when it's such a well-loved show. Were you kind of intimidated when you were first taking it on? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, terrified. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I think, though, the terror was taken over by the fact that I was desperate to do the part because it is um, one of the only parts I've ever read that is that funny and also um, has a kind of depth to it. And as especially as a female actress, quite often you get to play kind of quite 
um, <laughs> empty-headed, sort of simple 2D characters. Not all the time, but it seems to happen quite a lot. Sort of girlfriends and stuff like that. Mm. So I was just so excited to have the opportunity to play this kind of real woman. Okay. And and to meet Phoebe as well. So for um, people who haven't seen the TV show, yes. haven't seen the show, maybe tell us a little bit about your character Fleabag. So Fleabag is a kind of a reaction to the stereotype of a kind of um, well-behaved woman. And she is the worst parts of your best friend when she's telling you her deeper secrets. Like she's a very candid, very honest woman who is dealing with a lot of upset and grief in her life by making jokes, having sex and trying to ignore everything which I think we all can recognise and yeah a lot of the stuff that she talks about is is stuff that we feel well I feel as a woman I shouldn't really say out loud which is something that we need to break through um, because it's things that everyone thinks and especially when you're doing the show here and anywhere actually that we've done it but you hear these little laughs of recognition and you realise that we're all exactly the same and we all have these these thoughts and these feelings. So. Do you think that's that's what's been the biggest uh, appeal for this show because it's you know it's got mass appeal for the TV show and also you know you're getting great reviews and deservedly so and great audiences coming in. Do you think it is that uh, you know this character that is this woman that is flawed essentially and we get to see a flawed female lead do you think that's what it is or I think definitely mm. I think it's very exciting to see someone um, in the same state as you would see a close friend or a family member or someone that you tell secrets to on stage, live. Yeah. Are you worried about, like, how far it goes? Because it, it gets yeah. quite dark yeah. and it gets, you know, and I I was sitting there watching the show thinking, oh, I don't know if I want to hear some of this stuff that mm. the character says. So, uh, like, where do you think... It, the where do you think you can draw the line or do you just keep it keep it going i think that's really interesting because there has been a lot of um different differing opinions about whether she's kind of a sex positive character and whether she does take things too far sometimes um but i think the the point that the show is making is that if we keep trying to confine women to mm. these little boxes then the reaction to that if people do react react is is too far and you get unhappy and you use sex as a power tool and and you don't connect and and what Phoebe Waller-Bridge as the writer is doing is kind of pushing the audience to the point where they go oh this is really uncomfortable and also that's not something that anyone should be doing to themselves or to other people yeah that was me um, yeah, yeah exactly well you do feel confronted I think because I yeah. saw it before I did it and I remember laughing a lot and thinking this is so brilliant and she's so funny and then about midway through being like oh I'm not sure I can watch this it's so hard because yeah. you're watching someone who because also the audience get a bit of ahead of the character after a while and and Fleabag is sort of being really brash and telling these stories about all her escapades and you are starting to realise that she isn't as happy and confident as she may seem. How hard is it to bring something new to a character that's so defined and one that you've mm. seen before as well? Yeah, I think difficult in your own, my own sort of like anxious brain. Like mm. obviously my mm. brain is like, oh, how do I fill those amazing shoes? Because I'm a huge fan of her as an actress as well as a writer. But I think... What we've been calling it is like uh, taking over James Bond. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no big deal, I'm the new Bond. Um, but it's in similarly, it's kind of like it automatically changes in that I'm a different person. And I think there are different parts of the script that I personally find more easy to connect to and, and they might be different parts than, than Phoebe did originally and also I've got this amazing support network with Phoebe the writer and Vicky the director who also directed Phoebe and they're very encouraging and they find those bits that I make my own 
um, with me. So I feel very supported and that makes it a lot easier. Yeah. yeah. So Australians can now see the TV they can, series yes. after I know a lot of people have been waiting for it for a long time. How does your production relate to that? I mean, is there sort of expectation people will know the TV series? No, I mean, actually, it's quite funny when they do know the TV series. Sometimes people laugh before jokes and things like that, <laughs> um, which is really enjoyable for me. So still come along. Um, but it, it's so the show started as this this monologue. And so I think it's really fascinating to watch both in, in either order because it's so clever. Like it's very rare that you get to make a, a stage production into a TV show and it's a success mm. because it's such a different medium. And the whole play is a confessional monologue. So you're right in her head. And that's obviously impossible to do on the television because you need to see her walking around and you can't see everything from her point of view. So the way that she's done that is so clever. So she just acts out scenes and then she'll suddenly just look at the camera and tell you like what she really thinks about it and then go back to the scene. And when you watch the play, you can see where that all comes from and the kind of seed. And also a lot of the things that happen in the play aren't allowed to happen on television. So mm. if you want to see the real X-rated <laughs> yeah. dark version, you know where to come. But it is quite amazing. Like obviously it's your performance is, I think it's quite astounding because it is just you on the stage with uh, sitting on a stool and there's uh, occasionally some um, audio cues that come in. But the rest of it is just you and you're, it's quite captivating you know, you hold the audience's attention the whole time, you know, and obviously that's partly your performance and, and partly this, this script as well. Mm. Um, I, I think that was just me complimenting <laughs> me <laughs> and not having a question at the end of that. Well done. <laughs> uh, the, the original performance was in Britain. You mm -hmm. seem to have a British accent, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> do, do you think there is a difference between um, how these issues play out in Britain, how they play out in Australia? Have people commented on the, is this a, uh, a different experience for Australian women compared to British women? Um, I've had, it's been uh, slightly different um, from city to city, actually which is really interesting. But I, on the whole, I feel, I feel like the Australian humour is, is very similar in the dry... They, you like the dry mm -hmm. and the sort of slightly dark or, oh, should we laugh at that, which I know British people do love. I think that the British are slightly more prude prudish oh. and they do a lot of the laughs come with a kind of oh shouldn't <laughs> which I, it doesn't really happen here but I also think that um, especially I was just saying actually to someone today that in Melbourne I think that you guys connect with the kind of isolation in a city because it's a bigger city and it's it's more full of people that are coming to make something of themselves and and there's a real energy of kind of of this art and people yeah get coming somewhere exciting and then being very alone and on their own and so I think a lot of the audiences here have connected more with the sadness and with the loneliness and so there are there are moments where in England, people will be like, ha, ah. but here it's like, no, that's not funny, yeah. which is nice, right. I think. Yeah. How do you handle that as a performer? Like, you know, when you're used to having the laugh and then it doesn't come. <laughs> like, it is, I mean, it is so different all the time, mm. but I think this is the reason why it's so exciting to perform because the audience's reaction is very different every night. I mean, there are some laughs that normally come um the only thing in australia is that we have a joke about kent which is a small place in england yes and nobody gets it in australia <laughs> and so in england it's like kent wow uh, and here it's kent uh, yeah. Tumbleweed. <laughs> um, yeah but in yeah in general i think similar yeah, yeah. The show is Fleabag. It's on at the Malthouse until the 22nd of April as part of the Comedy Festival. It's getting rave reviews. So if you want to go get onto it soon, it's been it's performed by Maddie Rice, who's been our guest on Breakfasters. Thanks Yay, so much for coming. Thank you for having me. You're on Triple R. Three Triple R. You're listening to Breakfasters with Sarah, Jeff and Geraldine. Uh, Commonwealth Games... Opening ceremony was on last night. Um, 
Did anyone watch it? No. no. I didn't even know the Commonwealth Games are happening. No. How about that? No, I've totally missed this. Oh. Well, so I'll, I'll bring it up in the, I'll be talking about it in the news once <laughs> yeah. the events start happening. Uh, but the Commonwealth Games started uh, last last night. Um, I unfortunately missed the opening ceremony as well. But uh, don't fear because uh, we will give you uh, a recap of what we hoped <laughs> Happened like okay. If you if you were to organise your own opening ceremony, uh, what would you like to see in there? Oh, you start. Okay, I've got one. Um, I I think it'd be great to see uh, an interpretive dance depiction of the ball tampering incident. Oh, oh my yes. god, that would be amazing. <laughs> so many possibilities. That would be so good. And I, do you think maybe Nikki Webster could could play uh, what's his name? The Smith? ball. <laughs> the ball. <laughs> I was thinking more Smith, but yeah. that, yes, yeah. yeah. I um, what she's up to now, anyway. She runs a dance studio. Oh, oh, that's fitting. Yeah, she often pops up in NW and stuff and I catch up on her life. Mm. Well, I was thinking um, it'd be good to give everyone a go. Yes. You know what I mean? So you get like every... the audience. Well, you get everyone out there on stage, but then you mix it up. Okay. So, like, you have all the singers and the dancers and stuff, they come out there, but instead of singing and dancing, they have to do sporting events. Oh. And then all the sports people have to sing and dance. Rightio. Ah. So you see a different side of them. Sounds horrible. <laughs> it does. It sounds like a terrible karaoke. <laughs> I just like the idea of I thought you could have some dancers and gymnasts come out and bound into the centre of the stadium yes. and they're going to bounce around on trampolines but they're not trampolines, they're massive goon bags. Oh. oh. Giant goon bags. Full of goons still? Full of, why not? <laughs> Why and not? Then, <laughs> then they can spray the goon into the audience's mouth. Yeah. Everyone would love that. There'd be something very Australian about that as well. Yeah. Put it in there. But Open if wide. you want, yeah, you want to make it more Australian, <laughs> then you have like around, like you say, you have the giant goon bags in the middle. Yes. Right. So gymnasts and stuff doing somersaults on that. And then, yeah, open up the valve, off it goes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Spray. Yeah. And then, but on the outside, you have hills hoists everywhere <gasps> with the goon bags tied to the hills hoist and then you everyone playing Wheel of Doom. Wheel of Doom. Wheel of, Wheel of Goon, they, sorry. They, they, Wheel of Goon. They did have hills hoists at the Sydney Olympics. They yes, did, this is yes. Oh, this, yeah. this is what reminded me of it, and like we would go the next step. Genius, put I the, love it. Put the goon bag. Do you, are you aware of Wheel of Goon? What that is? Uh, I have a fair sense of what it might be, but explain. No, you explain what you think it is. Um, <laughs> might be more fun. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, now that you mentioned, I try to think about. Uh, I figured some kind of drinking game. Yeah. yeah. But how does it work? It, has, it involves a hill twist and a bag of goon. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Do you drink from the bag of goon and then you grab hold of the hill twist and you swirl <laughs> around and around and around and then the, until the, the first one vomits? Goon of fortune <laughs> is what it's called. People <laughs> texting. I, I I knew your interpretation would be much better than the real thing. <laughs> no, it's just you, you stand around the hill twist and then you you peg the goon bag. To, to the clothesline and then you spin it and if it lands in front of you, then yeah, you have you drink. to drink. So there's no yeah. vomiting involved. There's no vomiting or spinning. No, no. Well, there could be. But Take it yeah, up and I like, <laughs> I like your, I like yours. Um, also, I think it would be cool, like, um, also if you have some great ideas um, of what you want in the opening ceremony, <laughs> you can text us in on 0466 I think it would be cool to have like right at the end like this big weird machine comes in and there's lots of um, uh, people like dressed in, in black and then they come in and they overtake everybody and you find out that the machine is the Adani mine and everyone dies. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody would be it's expecting intense. that. Uh, someone said all the athletes and crowd get a robo-debt. That's very political. Ah. The Centrelink robo-debt. I, I was what is that? Oh, oh, Centrelink has that robo debt thing that's giving oh, people. Oh, robo, yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. That would be that would be very. Fitting, well, I was actually. thinking we could revisit um, that famous Olympic ceremony that you mentioned, where they yes. did have the they did have the hills hoist, and um, but they also had Victor lawnmowers because it was all those icons. Oh, that's yeah, right. You know, the guys dancing around with the Victor lawnmowers. Yeah, but because it's the Commonwealth Games, the Commonwealth Games are kind of a big 
crap. Yeah. Instead of having dancers dancing around with them, it would just be some old blokes with some Victor. Mowie. <laughs> just, just mow the lawn while everyone watches. <laughs> but oh God, and, and not so aware much. that they're part yeah, of yeah. anything. Oh, I just got a bit of a job yeah. to do. Or is everyone looking at you for? I like this one. Someone's just texted in saying all ex-prime ministers all have a beer sculling cup. Oh, that is well, so yeah. good. Hawkey's got that on Yeah. Him. Clear, yeah, Hawkey has got that. Not much of a competition, is there? Although, Abbott, I feel like Abbott might be a bit of a dark horse on the beer sculling. Oh, I think Abbott definitely can scull and he'd really pride no. himself on it. I think he'd practice at home. Yeah. No, d- don't you remember there was that time that um, he had that shandy in, in the pub? Do you remember that? Like it was, it was supposed to be him like, look how blokey I am and, oh, you vote for me, I'm a real man. Oh, I have a shandy. I like, can't remember that. Oh. And he kind of just sipped it weirdly. Uh, oh. Someone else had texted in saying Gillard's the dark horse and I, I completely well, possibly, agree with that. Yeah. Why don't we shoot all prime ministers who got felled in a leadership spill who we didn't get to get rid of? We Can sh- can you remember the Barcelona Olympics where they shot a flame? They shot the, arrow, the arrow into the flame. Yeah. But we could shoot them into one of those big bug zappers. But not sure. it doesn't actually zap them to death. <laughs> it just <laughs> makes a noise and then they... Or <laughs> okay, do you mean no, no? Or get them all up and um, on where you throw the thing at them and then they fall in the water. Oh, oh like, like one of those that. sort of it's a knockout. Sort yeah, of. yeah. Get all the prime ministers up on there and take you, and then get the you know the athletes to come and throw the thing and then the prime ministers fall in the water. Bit of fun. Bit of fun. I like the bit bugs out more, frankly. Yeah. You know, that's just me. Oh, yeah. Do a sweet combo of both. No, then they'll die. Uh, so don't do that. Um, what else? You got? I haven't got anything else. You got anything else? Uh, I don't know. Um, maybe um, Australian pub games. Like what? Well, two up. Two up. I was, I was more thinking of like... Um, Drunken darts, or like, um, you know, when you go to play pool. Is that just any game but drunk? <laughs> when you say <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> any game but drunk, that's right. That's that could be the motto for the for the Commonwealth game. It's like the Olympics. We play every game but drunk. But how you could combine that with the going back to the goon bags. And uh, oh. so just before you have someone that's about to drink but then the dart comes in and then pokes a hole in it and that's where you get all the goon out. Someone has just suggested <laughs> that I'm trying to make this into Hunger Games. But imagine we did have Hunger Games of ex-Prime Ministers. Oh. <laughs> Who wouldn't like that? <laughs> all right, the Canberra Games. Just getting too far. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R in Melbourne, Australia. You're tuned to Breakfasters here on Triple R. Wonderland is a new exhibition and actually running until October. It's looking at how Alice in Wonderland has featured on film and other representations through the years. An amazing interactive work that we were lucky enough to catch yesterday. We're also very fortunate to be joined in the studio by one of the curators, Sarah Tutton. Welcome to Breakfasters. Thank you for having us. Now, everyone knows Alice of Wonderland in some form or another, but as this show makes clear, there have been many, many different forms. Perhaps tell us something about the origins. When was the story originally written and what was the context in which it first appeared? So Lewis Carroll, who was um, an academic, a mathematician, um, was working in Victorian England um, and he wrote this story. He was very interested in games and puzzles and linguistic tricks and he wrote this, famously wrote the story um, about a young friend of his, Alice Liddell. He told her this story about her on a boat trip on the River Chem and the children were so enthralled by it that when he went home, he decided that he would write up this story. Originally, he did his own illustrations, but he felt that those illustrations didn't really match up to his, um, I suppose, visualisation of the story. So he went to his friend John Tenniel, who was quite a famous illustrator at the time, and he provided the illustrations. It's interesting because Lewis Carroll was also a very well-known 
portrait photographer at the time. So he had a really interesting history, I suppose, in the pre-moving image world as a photographer. He was also very interested in Magic Lantern shows and was very interested in the theatre. What are Magic Lantern shows? Um, Magic Lanterns are a sort of proto-cinematic toy. It was... uh, So they were slides that... Like the flicker things? Yes. And so people would do talks sort of... They were a type of entertainment, popular entertainment prior to cinema. So this exhibition shows very dramatically that Alice moved from the page to the stage and then the screen Mm. over and over and over again. When did that first happen? What are some of the more notable versions of the moving Alice? So the first moving Alice was in 1903. Cecil Hepworth made his first film. Um... Really, from then on, I would say in every year and every decade, there has been a version of Alice on screen. Some of them are better than others. Um, There's been a lot of television. There's been a lot of segments in television shows. And a lot of that you can see in the Wonderland exhibition. We've really narrowed down on about six key films that we thought were the most important and the most interesting, including one television show, a BBC version from 1966 made by Jonathan Miller, um, that we really thought told the story of the way that special effects and film craft could be traced through the history of Alice over time. So we move from sort of early cinema in black and white with no sound through talkies, through animation, stop-motion animation, um, CGI, all the way through to sort of very high-tech advertising. Like when, yeah, because you come through and then it's the Johnny Depp version yes. at the end. Um, Is there one kind of Alice that has that was particularly strange or particularly changed the way that she was represented? There's a... Jan Schwenkmeyer version, who is a Czech animator. and he It's amazing. Mm. I mean, that would be my favourite room in the exhibition. He really felt a connection to Lewis Carroll and to the story. He made his film Alice, but he also made one called Jabberwocky. And he very much influenced the Quay brothers, who are um, American filmmakers based in England, who Christopher Nolan has had a very tight relationship with. They were very influenced by Jan Schwenkmeyer. So there's a very nice sort of connection around stop-motion animation and um, I suppose a weirder, creepier, more interesting, more adult. Yeah, it was slightly creepy, but it's, <laughs> that's why it was so good. And, um, it's such an amazing exhibition in how hands-on it is. Like, oh, I could have spent hours in there like and so and you know it was in there for quite a, a long time anyway but because there, there's so many little things that you might miss on on the first when you first walk through um i know you get uh, the interactive map yes do you want to tell us a little bit yes. about that well when we first started thinking about alice we were really drawn to the idea that it's about curiosity that's why the story has transcended cultures and time. One of the interesting things about Alice is that there's no moral in it. She's not being she's not telling you anything. Oh. Yeah, she's it's true, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. She's somebody who can be interpret interpreted by people from all sorts of different sort of times and places. And curiosity was really important to that. So we didn't want people to come in and get everything instantly. We wanted people to have to work to be curious the way Alice is. Mm. So we worked with Dan Kerner from Sandpit, which is a sort of digital creative agency who we work uh, we work very closely with Dan to create this map which was your own individual journey through the exhibition which would reveal extra stories extra facts it was partly that also that when we were doing research about the exhibition there is so much to find out once you start digging into Victorian mm. England it just kind of all these amazing things come out of it. So we wanted people to learn about that, the connections we found around Aldous Huxley and Disney and all these really interesting things. We thought that was a way for people to, I suppose, delve into that in a mm. different way. So what is your most amazing Alice fact? In uh, what's two years of curating this? It took us about two years. Um, so you I must s- have uncovered lots of little nuggets? We un- yes, there was lots of crazy rabbit holes that we went down to <laughs> cliche about it. I suppose I was really fascinated by the connection around Aldous Huxley. Aldous Huxley's mother was one of the girls that Lewis Carroll 
photographed. And huh. then when he moved to LA to be a scriptwriter, he wrote one. He wrote one of the first treatments for Disney for the Alice in Wonderland film, which was never used, um, and was sort of destroyed in a fire and later discovered. But I like the eye. And then the the Disney film actually wasn't a huge success when it was first released. Mm-hmm. Um, but Disney in the late 60s realised that it had a kind of psychedelic edge and maybe um, students might like it. So they put it out <laughs> ah. in university campuses and then it got this whole sort of other cult following, cult following yeah, to right. it. And then it had this Aldous Huxley kind of doors of perception story behind it and then his mother had been involved. So I was quite fascinated yes, by that. he was quite that. fond yeah. of hallucinogenics. He was. He quite liked yeah. hallucinogenics. <laughs> <laughs> so did some people who watched Wonderland. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was something that jumped out at me going through because you walk through so many different doors and you see so many different things through the exhibition. Alice really is kind of like a Rorschach block, you know, blot in a, in a way, partly because I suppose there's that dreamlike element of it, but it can be interpreted in so many different ways. And that really comes out through the exhibition, the, the feminist versions of it, the psychedelic versions of it, the Freudian versions of we it. We very much wanted, we had a moment as a curatorial team early on where people were talking about Alice in a way that we didn't feel comfortable with. We we were th- at that stage three women curating it and we saw her as tough and feisty and she was doing her own thing. And somebody said something which made it sound like they didn't think that. And we thought, we need this to come through. We need her to be the toughest, most kick-ass girl. So that's where the end section where there's a a sort of a multi-screen version of her comes. Sort of you see her in all her iterations. And we wanted to show that in a really strong way to end with her. Mm. Okay, so the exhibition is on now and it's running for some time, but you're also running a program of talks and activities. Can you give some sense of what's coming up? Um, We've got a number of talks on Sunday. Um, Jess Bram, who's one of the other curators, is doing a talk. I am interviewing Matt Crandall, who is one of our key Disney collectors. He's fascinated by the 1951 version. Um, And then over the next couple of months, we've got a series of talks rolling through with fans and academics and people just generally interested in Alice on screen. And we've got an excellent film program as well. Okay. And so who do do you see this exhibition as being aimed at because there's a lot of information in it there's i'm sure it's going to be relevant to to you know scholars and people interested in film but it's also a heap of fun isn't it we wanted to it was it's always a difficult thing to balance we wanted it to be lots of fun to appeal to people who love alice but we were also very conscious that there's some really rich deep material that people can mine into and that Alice sort of offers the opportunity for both. So it is playful and it's immersive, but it also rewards your curiosity. Excellent. The exhibition's called Wonderland. It's on Acme at Fed Square, running until October. We've been talking to one of the curators, Sarah Tutton. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. You, you're listening to Breakfasters. Uh, it's Friday morning. Uh, welcome to the weekend, almost. Um, <laughs> I think most people still got to get through a day of no. work. Um, <laughs> That's all right. Just, uh, it's nearly over. Uh, it's not even <laughs> begun. <laughs> <laughs> it's quarter past eight. Literally, I'm pretty sure most of my friends just woke up. All the bosses. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Let's let's have a bit of fun though. So I don't know if you remember um, ages ago, uh, I talked about um, uh, how there's certain board games that tip people over the edge. Oh yes, yes. <laughs> so for me, Game of Life. Is it? Oh yeah. Oh, oh really? Yeah, I get really angry. Just in the Game of Life. So many things outside your control. Oh, okay. <laughs> Tell me more. No, <laughs> no that's all right. Let's carry on. <laughs> so, no, for me, it's Pictionary. That uh, would make sense, so much sense. Yeah. 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 I just draw stick men and no one can work out what they are. I also feel like for you, charades, although it's on a board game, would be maybe an issue. Well, I would never play charades, so okay. that doesn't come up. Right. <laughs> well, guess what we're <laughs> doing later. <laughs> uh, so, and for Kath, it was um, the a certain version of Trivial Pursuit, 
Right. Millennial <laughs> Trivial Pursuit. I call it Millennial Trivial Pursuit because it, it's two, the 2000s. Is that what it says on the box there? Yeah, the two, it's called the 2000s edition. The 2000s editions, right? Uh, and they've kind of made it. It's a different kind of setup a little bit. Um, essentially, the board's the same and you still got to get your pieces of pie and whatnot. Um, but the questions, Kath's problem was that she didn't think that the questions matched with the topic. So you know how you've got science, literature, sport, entertainment, yes. etc. So I've brought a couple in. Um, I've brought all of them in. But um, So let's – I'll read one out at random. Oh. And then you can try and answer the question. It's not about trying to answer the question, so don't stress too much, Jeff. Oh, okay. Because I know you were worried about that. <laughs> but <clears> – <throat> Let's see if we can figure Let's see out. Who's really, the smart one. Yeah, and see if we can figure out. <laughs> I'll ask the question, and then maybe you have to figure out what category it is oh. coming from. Can we also answer the question if we yes, not? Yes, okay, absolutely, great. absolutely. Um, oh, hang on. Uh, okay. Oh, what? No, I don't know how any, any of these work. I should have. I should have prepared this much better. <laughs> <laughs> Where are the questions? They're all answers. Should we have buzzers? Yes. Oh. All right, here we go. <clears throat> what your buzzer can your buzzer is your name. All right. Okay. What type of animal competes in an annual race in the outback Sarah. town of Wundar? Sarah Cam- camel. No. Damn it. Huskies. No. Uh, bull fro- uh, frogs, toads. No. 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 All right. Keep Some going. Kind of fish. Oh god. No, don't. I'm done. To yabby. Ah. Oh. Uh, what's just remembering why I hate this game so much? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's just what's your game, is it? <laughs> I just feel like it's like some nasty exam. <laughs> People asking you annoying <laughs> questions about things you don't care about. What's carry that, on? This is a uh, Yabby. Who's yeah. Yabby? There you now, go. What, but the question, what category is that from? So I think that might be from geography. Or maybe sports. Is that yellow? I don't know. Yellow. Uh, oh, you don't oh, know the answer well, to it. Okay. <laughs> I maybe now. I think that should be sports. Oh, but oh yeah, maybe no, sport sports. is orange, though. That would be sports. Hang on, colours. Okay, here's here's another one. I definitely know what this one is. Right. Okay, you ready? <clears throat> Yellow is hey. events. Oh, events. In this oh, new world, new yeah. One. So it's actually a new category. So there's events, science and events. tech. The arts. Yeah, how weeds that? Places. <gasps> Not geography, it? places. Entertainment and sports and hobbies. But events, what does if, events could be anything? I know. Everything's an event. Yeah, everything is an event. Life's an event. Yeah. That's y- stupid. Yabbies. How is Yabbies an event? Well, Yabbies Racing is an yeah, event. Yeah, Yabby Racing is an event. I understand this. Uh, yeah, I see, because you're more, more like of a millennial than. Yeah, Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. It's not a millennial. <laughs> <laughs> All right, hey, ask me another dumb question. What is it? <laughs> All right, this is great. This is turning dark. (laughs) Uh, Which app helped introduce the fad of photographing your dinner with the help of various different filters? Sarah. Uh, I'll go to Sarah because she's playing the game properly. Instagram. She is correct. Can't just yell out the answer, Jeff. (laughs) All right, do you want another one? It's the right way and the wrong way to be this. One more, please, more. What, what is the most... I'm much smarter than you now. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a competition. <laughs> sure is. It is. Literally is a competition. <laughs> All right. Uh, what is the most successful Australian program in Logie's history? Sarah. Oh. Yeah. Oh, TV. Uh, Home and Away. Correct. Yes. Another one. Neighbours never wins for some reason. What do you reckon that's about? Because it's not as good. Systems rigged. Ah, Neighbours is good. The Harry Potter... Potter books have been translated into which of these languages? Ancient Egyptian, Latin, or Norse? Jeff. Sarah. Jeff? Uh, Latin. Correct. Ding, ah. ding, 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 ding. Do you like the game now? That no, you've got? I don't like the game. <laughs> and I still object to events. Oh, fair. Yeah, I object to fair. events too. That's really weird. It's almost like they made the board and went, oh, shit, we've like forgotten the, one bit. Yeah. The colours were always stupid and it's like they've decided to make them more stupid. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, think, well. I think you can put... Trivial pursuit up there with <laughs> things over the edge. <laughs> what is? What, but what's what? the game that you do? What's a board game you that you do, do like? I don't like board games. No uh, board games. No. I Why? Don't. What is it about them? I, it's like what you say that they always end up with just people getting in a shitty mood and well attitudes like yours. They do. <laughs> what about Twister? Yeah. 
Oh. That's not about competing. That's about touching your leg against <laughs> someone else's leg. It's <laughs> just creepy. It is creepy, isn't it? Yeah, creepy. but that's what it's like. like a, it's, yeah, it yeah, is creepy. It's like some sort of 70s kind of key-sharing okay, game. Okay, I don't know how to twist your playing. <laughs> Jesus. You're listening to the best bits of The Breakfasters from 3RRR. 